Hello and welcome to episode 103 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam. Of course, with Halloween just around the corner, today we will look at a case... Oh, come on, really? You really thought that I was cliched enough to feature a Halloween case today? Get out of here. Today we look at professional sport and a recurring theme on this show when a series of bad decisions on one evening changed the course of a life and other lives forever. But first, I'm delighted that today's episode is again sponsored by the book of the year 2018 by No Such Thing as a Fish. Have you bought your copy yet? If not, what are you waiting for? It's a fantastic book. If you've ever listened to the podcast No Such Thing as a Fish, you know that nobody's better at sniffing out the barely believable yet hilarious facts from the team of researchers behind the BBC TV show QI. And now they've written a book and it's full of the weirdest and funniest true stories from the year, including the following. Did you know that Mark Zuckerberg's private data was compromised while he was talking to Congress about compromised data? And when Kim Jong-un met Donald Trump at the Singapore summit this year, he brought his own personal toilet with him so that foreign spies couldn't use anything he left behind to analyse his health. And there are many, many more. The book of the year 2018 by No Such Thing as a Fish is your definitive guide to the world's weirdest news. It's out now in hardback, ebook, and audiobook in all good bookshops and online. It's a fab book, so please support my sponsor and this podcast and buy this excellent book today. Thank you. Before we begin, I would like to say a big thank you to all my Patreon supporters but especially this week's new supporters, that's Peter Hopton and Stephen Smith. Thank you both so much, and bonus episode 21 is out this week, and it's a corker. So let's set some context to today's story. Firstly, don't you just love non-hypocritical pop stars? Ah, and incidentally, you 2 topped the UK charts with Vertigo. In the US, it was Usher and Alicia Keys with My Boo, And in the news, intellectual titan George W. Bush was re-elected President of the US, defeating John Kerry. Yasser Arafat died. And in the UK, Parliament passed the Hunting Act 2004, which banned fox hunting in England and Wales. Yet incredibly, this still goes on in the name of sport. I really am just lost for words. What is wrong with people? Born in 1976... Lee Hughes was a fantastic footballer. Through school, he stood out as a great player, super competitive, strong, and with a natural ability to score goals. Living in West Bromwich, a district of Birmingham, around seven miles northwest of the centre of the city, football was his life. And the dream appeared to be coming true for him when he was picked up by local club West Bromwich Albion as an 11 year old. But at that age, physical maturity, is as important as ability. And just three years later, in 1990 at 14, a devastated Lee was let go by the club he'd supported for all of his young life. Although he continued to play, when he left school rather than making a living as a professional footballer, he began working as a roofer with his dad. But it wasn't long until he got his break in football with non-league Kidderminster Harriers, who signed 19-year-old Lee in August 1995 as a trainee. Lee was an instant success. 
loved by supporters as he scored 62 goals in two years. But more than that, they could see that he was one of them and he gave everything every time he ran on the pitch. His goal tally brought scouts from other clubs to watch him play and at the age of 21, he finally realised his childhood ambition when he signed for West Bromwich Albion for a fee of £380,000. He immediately thrived and the future looked bright. During the 1998-1999 Division 1 campaign, his second season at West Brom, he scored 31 goals, more than anybody else in all four divisions, including Michael Owen and Alan Shearer. He finished as the club's top scorer for four seasons running. He was sold to Coventry City for £5 million in August 2001, but it didn't really work out there, and he returned to West Brom for half that figure 12 months later. Although he failed to impress in the Premier League, he played a major role as the club made an immediate return to the top flight as runners-up in 2003-2004. The fans loved him. He wore his heart on his sleeve, plus a West Brom tattoo on his arm, and the supporters affectionately referred to Gingerhead Lee as the Ginger Ninja. He was down to earth, and fans loved hearing of his endearing love for the local Balti cuisine. One interview he gave to a local newspaper after a match-winning performance sums up how he felt about the club and supporters, saying, My house is about a mile and a half from the West Brom ground, and I must have been about six when I first saw a game there. I was a season ticket holder for I started playing on Saturday afternoons. I was a schoolboy with them from 11 to 15, but wasn't offered a contract, and I wasn't too surprised because I didn't really develop until later. Anyway, going to Kidderminster was the right move for me. I dropped down, developed my game, and was then able to work my way back up. A few clubs were interested in buying in me, but once I knew that West Brom had come in, there was no contest. They were the club for me. Manchester United could have come in and I'd still have signed for the Albion. I love this club. There's nothing to match playing for the Albion at the Hawthorns. You run through the tunnel and look at where you used to stand as a lad. It's just the biggest buzz. Lee was also making headlines off the pitch as someone who hadn't forgotten his roots and supporters loved bumping into him in local pubs. He made the headlines for his love life when 19-year-old Charlene Gills claimed he had fathered her child. She even made him take a DNA test which later proved he was not the child's father. He was also a victim of crude chanting from away fans after he got engaged to lap dancer Donna Nisbet after a whirlwind romance in 1999. But after spitting from Donna, he married a Croatian lady, Anna Kuzmanic, in a quiet ceremony near her home in June 2000, six months before their first child, Mia, was born. With his fame also came the riches. Lee earned over £16,000 a week and lived with his family in a £750,000 Mock Tudor Mansion in the lovely Warwickshire village of Meriden. But his socialising began to cause him problems. In 2000, along with another player at the club, he was questioned by police over allegations that they assaulted a man outside a pub in nearby Brearley Hill. The case against the pair was dropped in September of that year. In November 2004, Lee was at his peak as a player, when at West Ham he scored 
as West Brom came back to win 4-3 after being 3-0 down. But then came the event that would change his life forever. It was Saturday, November the 22nd, and Lee was a substitute. When he came off the bench, he could not make an impact in a televised 0-0 draw against Reading. But after the game, it was a Saturday night, so Lee was going out. He returned home after the match and went out a bit later at about 10pm, accompanied by his lifelong best mate, Adrian Smith. Lee was driving his silver sports car, a Mercedes CL55 compressor, and he picked up Adrian for stopping at the nearby Queenshead pub. They stayed there for a while before moving to another pub, the Poacher's Retreat. Although he was driving, Lee was still drinking heavily, and according to witnesses, he had as many as nine whiskey and cokes in the short time that he was drinking at the pub. Everyone knew Lee, and he was a very sociable guy who loved the banter with his mates, many of whom he'd grown up with. And tonight was particularly raucous, as it was the day that England beat Australia to claim the Rugby World Cup, and generously, Lee had spent about £80 on two rounds of drinks for a group celebrating England's win. At closing time, he and Adrian had invited three men he'd met in the pub back to his house, where he'd a pool table and bar so they could continue the party. Hey, there was no training tomorrow, so no need for an early start. They got in the car and Lee hit the accelerator and he drove fast, really fast. One car coming the other way saw Lee's car go round a bend at such speed, she said. The only way I can describe it, to be honest, is that he was driving like a madman. Unprepared for the sharpness of the bend, Lee was unable to brake in time, and he was on the wrong side of the road when he saw the headlights just in front of him, just before the impact. If you've been in a head-on crash before, you'll recall that terrifying noise, the crashing of glass the screams of those in the car and the massive jolt caused as the cars collide. Followed by that eerie silence, as if it was all just a dream. The car Lee Hughes had hit was a Renault being driven by a 59-year-old man, Adrian Frisby, who was returning from a country and western night at a local community centre. He'd offered a lift to a couple who sat in the back seats, 59-year-old Douglas Graham and his wife Maureen. In the front was another friend, Frank Gosling. Just before the smash, Adrian recalled clearly what had happened. I saw the headlights coming towards me. I said to my friend in the front, look at this mad bastard, he must be doing 60 miles an hour, and the next thing I knew he had got me. The car just behind the Renault pulled over and ran to the wreckage. As she tried to help the occupants of the car, she saw Lee Hughes getting out of the Mercedes. She said, he held his hands to his head and said, I can't believe what has happened. I was only doing 30 miles an hour. I remember saying, there is no way you were doing 30 miles an hour. Firefighters arrived and had to cut the passengers out of the wreckage of the Renault. But tragically, Douglas Graham's injuries were too severe and he died at the scene on the road. Police soon arrived, but there was no sign of Lee Hughes and Adrian Smith. Police turned up at his house, but still no sign of him, and no one knew where he was. Rather than stay and face the music, Coward Hughes and his mate had done a runner, and they were nowhere to be seen. 
Maybe he'd been injured in the crash and wandered off in a daze. But it was more likely, based on the evidence of his drinking in the pub, that he'd gone away to sober up. The three men he was taking back to his house were still trapped in the car, but fortunately for them, they only suffered minor injuries. The next morning, detectives urged Hughes to give himself up. A West Midlands police spokesman said, A man in his 60s who was a rear seat passenger in the McGann died from his injuries, and his wife, who was also a passenger, is currently in Coventry and Warwickshire Hospital with a broken leg. The male driver suffered a broken pelvis and another male passenger suffered bruising. They said there were five men in the Mercedes which was involved in the accident just after midnight. The male driver of the Mercedes left the scene with one of the passengers. Three other passengers remained at the scene and inquiries are ongoing to find the driver. We would urge him to come forward and contact his local police station. And 36 hours after the incident, he did turn himself in. And let's face it, he had no choice, did he? He told police he had fled the scene in panic and shock, but still refused to explain his whereabouts in the aftermath of the tragedy. Hughes was bailed ahead of his trial, where he pleaded guilty to failing to stop after an accident and failing to report an accident. He denied causing the death of Douglas Graham by dangerous driving. In his evidence, Hughes claimed he had drunk just two Jack Daniel whiskey and Cokes and taken only a sip of a third. The court heard that in an interview with West Midlands police detectives, father of two Hughes said he fled with his childhood friend and passenger Adrian Smith. The pair ran towards a nearby A45 dual carriageway, but when pressed to say where they went next, he said, Do I have to answer? I'd rather not say really. He was asked again and admitted he went to Adrian's home in Smethwick, more than 20 miles away, but would not say how they got to Smethwick, although detectives strongly suspected that Hughes called his wife, who took the two men to Adrian's house. The 28-year-old said, I put my brakes on to stop and the brakes locked. Then I lost control of the vehicle, lost control and hit another vehicle. I hit my head on the sun visor. I hit my head and there was panic. I just panicked and ran off. I didn't know what to do. I was just so scared. Asked why he ran from the scene and then disappeared, he told police. I just found out someone had passed away and I just, I just don't know. It just shocks you. The court heard that he said he knew that under the law, accidents had to be reported to police within 24 hours. But he told police he was definitely not over the legal drink drive limit as he set off home with friends after drinking just the two Jack Daniels. The officers also asked the player if he felt driving at an estimated 50 miles an hour in spitting rain on a wet, unlit road was the correct speed, to which Hughes replied, I thought it was okay. Giving evidence, Hughes said that his car acted in a way that he'd never seen before. I tried to steer and nothing happened, he said. Describing his actions after the crash, he said he remembered being in a crash and hearing shouting and screaming, but added he was not at all proud about leaving the scene of the accident. And the court heard heartbreaking testimony from the victims. Douglas Graham, as we've said, who wasn't wearing a seatbelt, died at the scene. The driver of the car, Adrian Frisby, who has four grown-up children and 22 grandchildren, suffered a broken hip and pelvis, two broken kneecaps 
of fractured wrists and chest injuries. The court was told how he can't walk without a stick and his wife was forced to give up her work as a carer to look after him. The jury took just 90 minutes to find Lee Hughes guilty of causing death by dangerous driving, for which he was jailed for six years. He received four months on each lesser charge to run concurrently. He was also banned from driving for 10 years and ordered to pay almost £9,000 in costs. Hughes stood quietly, biting his lip as the verdict was delivered. His wife, Anna, broke down in tears when the verdict was announced, while the Graham family cheered and shouted yes before breaking down in tears too. The judge said he had shown a callous disregard for the passengers in the other car. He added, It has to be remembered by all that no penalty this court can impose upon you will bring the unfortunate Mr Graham back to life. While I realise that your football career is at an end, be reminded that Douglas Graham's life is at an end. I'm quite satisfied in running away. You were thinking only of yourself and you were attempting to avoid the legal consequences of driving having consumed alcohol. You clearly believe that if you'd been breathalyzed, then you'd have been over the limit. Outside court, Mr Graham's eldest son, also called Douglas, read out a statement on behalf of the family. He said, The death of a husband, father, grandfather and brother and the circumstances surrounding this case have caused a huge amount of grief and stress to our family. In some ways it has brought the family close together, but it has left an unjustified gap in our lives. We can only hope that Mr Hughes will acknowledge what he has done to our family and that he can learn from these terrible events. Detective Sergeant Andrew Bannister, who led the West Midlands Police investigation into the crash, said, I would hope that as a result of this investigation and subsequent prosecution, other drivers will consider their actions and that dangerous driving can have devastating consequences and wreck lives. After the case, Douglas's widow said she'd never heard of Lee Hughes before the crash. She said, My husband was a loving, caring husband and a good father to four children. Angela Frisby, whose father was driving the car, said, I'm over the moon. This verdict gives all the families involved some justice. For a long time we thought Lee Hughes was going to get away with it because of who he is. My dad's way of life has been destroyed. He is now bound to a wheelchair, and I've had to care for him full time while my mum goes out to work. It has affected us every day, but hopefully this verdict will allow us to move on. And tragically, not long after the trial, and just 13 months after the accident, Mrs Graham also died. In August 2007, after serving just three years in prison, Lee Hughes was a free man and had signed a new contract as a professional footballer with Oldham Athletic. His £160,000 annual salary was well down on the £16,000 a week he earned at West Brom. But his decision to return to professional football so soon after his release provoked strong condemnation from many football supporters up and down the country, including some at Oldham, who believed it was morally wrong to employ him. But still aged only 31, Hughes said the following, Whilst it is not part of my contract, it has always been my intention to do some community work centred on the mistakes I have made in the hope it can go some way towards preventing another tragedy occurring. 
I truly want to do this and will be visiting schools, colleges and other football clubs to speak to young people. If by doing this, I help or persuade people not to make the mistakes I have made, I'll be a happier person. He said he'd made personal contact with the family of Douglas Graham since being released, but refused to reveal what had been said. I made the biggest mistake of my life, Hughes added. If I could turn back time, I would, but I can't. I was hating myself every day for what I did, and I'm so remorseful for what I did. I keep saying sorry, but I know that's not good enough. I've let my family down, and I haven't seen my children for three years. But this is my job. If I'd been a plumber, then I'd go back to plumbing. I'm not at Oldham to be a hero. I just want to enjoy football and help Oldham, not be the centre of attention. After his release from prison in August 2007, he played at Oldham, Blackpool, Notts County and Port Vale. He was recently appointed as Worcester City's joint manager and then sacked. He now plays non-league football at Hale's own town. There are more issues for him along the way. At Christmas 2008, Hugh split with his wife Anna, who had stood by him when he was in prison, and he married again in 2010. And in 2012, he was charged with sexual assault over an incident in a hotel car park when he was away with his football team. To quote a report from the case, the complainant had attended a works function at the hotel, a Christmas party, and was speaking to her friends when Hughes, who had not spoken to her and whom she did not know, put his hand between her legs under her dress and lifted her up into the air. The complainant was annoyed and upset, and afterwards Mr Hughes tried to hug her and suggested he was having a laugh. And Hughes insisted it was all just innocent horseplay, but in the end he pleaded guilty to common assault, the charge of sexual assault was dropped and he received a fine. And then earlier this year, 2018, 41-year-old Lee Hughes was declared bankrupt. So what do you make of what we've heard today? A bit different to usual, sure. But again, the story shows how bad decisions can alter so many lives so quickly. Just when things are going well, it doesn't take much for everything to change. Many will think that Lee Hughes should have been locked up for longer for his actions, which killed one person and seriously injured others. Particularly hard to stomach is the way he ran away from his actions rather than taking accountability. Do you think so? You know, I'm not so sure I agree, as I'm uncertain what sending him to prison achieved. Surely, someone with his profile would have been better in the community where he could have made a real difference working with children and others. And what about Lee Hughes now? For all the good things he's done in his life and his commitment to his profession, he will be remembered for killing a man when drunk behind the wheel. Of course it's a terrible crime and no one should ever drink drive. Just as an aside, I'm also astonished all those people who let him walk out of the pub that night knowing that he was going to drive. But then again, due to his fame, maybe he was just untouchable. Either way, if there was no violent intent involved, I'm not so sure I would like to be forever judged on my actions following poor decision making. Would you? Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. Please join our Facebook group to discuss this case or all the Halloween related stories on other true crime podcasts this week. 
you'll be very, very welcome. Or why not live on the edge and join us on Patreon for the all-night parties, 21 bonus episodes and the regular free cash giveaways. Just head to patreon.com slash UK True Crime to join the fun. So that is all for me for now. So until we speak again next week, cheerio and remember, stay classy. <laughs>